the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us on this Tuesday afternoon. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, on Twitter at Common Good Talk. You can always find our podcast wherever it is you get uh, your podcast. So uh, this story continues to resonate of, uh, I believe it's pronounced Brant John. Uh, he is the brother of Botham John, so going even far, farther back. Uh, Botham John was the was the man who was uh, tragically uh, and senselessly killed in his own apartment uh, by police officer Amber Geiger, a former Dallas police officer uh, who entered into 26-year-old Botham John's apartment and fatally shot him. So you might remember on Wednesday, Geiger was sentenced to 10 years in prison, and then the Internet blew up when when Botham John's brother, Brandt, uh, got onto the witness stand after she'd been convicted. It's a time where where family can make their statements. And uh, he, we talked about it last week. It's been all over the internet. He basically offered her forgiveness said, I, I hope that you come to know Jesus. Can I hug her? And the judge said, yes, you can. He went down and embraced her. Uh, and people were rightfully saying, this is a picture of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. This is a picture of the gospel. Uh, and people were just sharing it all over Twitter, all over Facebook. Uh, amazing that an 18-year-old boy who lost his brother was devastated, is devastated, could do that. Uh, but then there's been another interesting conversation that's come out of that about the call for justice, even though forgiveness is offered, right? And so with that in mind, Christianity Today, they just wrote an article by Darina Williamson. It's called this, Botham John's brother's offer of forgiveness went viral. His mother's calls for justice should also what is kind of the heart of this well have you have you seen the uh the interview that she gave that went kind I, of viral i saw part of it uh did you watch it i did it, it is talk about it that? is really really worth watching and okay. i think it's a good because i posted the video of the hug and then included also in that a link to the mother because i think it i think this article is actually spot on that it is a it is sort of a, a both and um so I'll just, I'll just read a bit of the beginning because i think it kind of sets it up well it says brant john's response to his brother's murder uh, helps us see the gospel, but so does Allison John's. Mm. Did you miss hers? Only one response was widely shared on social media after the conviction and sentencing of Amber Geiger, a former Dallas police officer who entered a 26-year-old Botham, Jean, Botham Jean's apartment and fatally shot him. On Wednesday, Geiger was sentenced to 10 years in prison. The Jean family was given the opportunity to make a victim impact statement. Brant used this time to directly address the officer who killed his brother, like you said, uh, he said, if you truly are sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I forgive you. Uh, Brand told Geiger that both of them would have wanted her to give her life to Christ. And most have probably seen this footage, but many have likely missed footage from the rest of the family, including these words from both of them's mother, Allison. Here's what she said. 
forgiveness for us as Christians is a healing for us. But as my husband said, there are consequences. It does not mean that everything else we have suffered has to go unnoticed. So what went unnoticed, according to both of Jean's mother, uh, the crime scene was contaminated by Dallas police. High-ranking officials deleted evidence. Police officers turned off body cameras and vehicle cameras. You saw investigations that were marred with corruption, she said. While we, while we walk as Christians, we still have a responsibility to ensure that our city does what is right. So this, the article kind of goes on to talk about what is, it, what is the posture of a Christ follower mm. that can celebrate this radical act of forgiveness offered in the most unthinkable circumstances, but also when the stuff that she lists is really kind of only the tip of the iceberg, there is so much evidence that a lot of injustice has happened. Does this hug make the crime and the corruption at a systemic level sort of just disappear? And what, if anything needs to be sort of the response, particularly, you know, a lot of people have been writing about how it really has been a lot of white Christians who have been the quickest to sort of sort of share this video. And some are sort of assuaging that it's, you know, sort of appease some of our discomfort with the details of the story. And I'm, I'm curious how much truth is there, how much you felt about this article in particular. Does the mother have a point? What is our response? Any, any of that? How, how do you respond to kind of what she's saying here? Yeah, I think it's really powerful because I, when I first saw it, uh, I was one of the many, many people who just wanted to celebrate what the brother said. And I still want to celebrate what the brother said. The brother spoke so powerfully, but you know, when you start to sit back and think about it and you read the mother's words and some more people kind of fleshing it out, uh, it, it is really powerful. It, let me read some more of this. It says, as Allison, the mother noted, prison will offer Geiger a chance to reflect on her actions. The church should reflect too. Uh, to my white brothers and sisters, you've celebrated the words and actions of a family member you found inspirational and in line with how you understand your faith. Heed to the words of Allison. She's teaching us that forgiveness has another hand that fights for justice. They too go together. They are both part of the gospel. Brant and Allison uh, John are a part of the same family. Both profess faith in Jesus. Their bold and powerful statements offer us an opportunity to stand with them both. We don't have to pick Brant's call for grace at the expense of Mother Allison's cry. For justice, And I think that's the part we all need to wrestle with here, right? Like the family can offer forgiveness and still want justice. They can still fight for reform. They can still say, how do we make sure this never happens again while personally offering forgiveness? Those are not incompatible with each other. And in fact, what this article would say is they are actually they actually go hand in hand. They are part both of the gospel. Well, and I think to go even further, it's. It shouldn't be just this family right. and their drive for justice. I think that's part of the issue is, you know, in fact, I think this says it pretty well. It says forgiveness we know comes from the cross, but there is no resurrection without the horror of crucifixion. I fear we have softened the sacrifice of Jesus because we dare not linger on the bloody and gruesome body of a man tortured by the brutal law of the land joined with a religious order. I worry that we, like Pontius Pilate, are too quick to wash our hands. To be clear, I have no interest in judging the motivations of an 18-year-old man. Brian Jean spoke from the heart, but I'm concerned with how quickly people were willing to share his actions, potentially missing the greater context of the situation and missing the fuller picture of the gospel, which includes justice, not just grace. And there's a, another article on medium.com uh, and it's called what the Amber Geiger case reveals about white America. I encourage you to go read it, but it begins 
with this C.S. Lewis quote that says, but the trouble is that what we call asking God's forgiveness very often really consists in asking God to accept our excuses. There's all the difference in the world between forgiving and excusing, Mm. which I think is actually a really brilliant way of sort of framing this discussion. Yes, this act of mercy and forgiveness is beautiful, but also, yes, that's only one side of the coin. And I think part of our difficulty, Brian, is you and I are both like white men, there is sometimes a blindness, I think, to the injustice piece because we we only focus on this this beautiful moment of grace extended that sometimes can feel systemically like, well, then no harm, no foul. Right. And not talk about a 10 year sentence that I think probably doesn't go nearly far enough not really believing our brothers and sisters of color, not really listening to the stories. There, There is a sense, I think, sometimes that a story like this can feel like, all right, so we're all good here. Everything's fine. And I, I think that's part of why there's been the outcry that there has been. Yeah, it's a it's something worth thinking about even beyond this story, uh, because there's so much wrapped up in this story. In some ways, I just feel badly that the that the family is being put in the limelight here. They're, they're really just still grieving the loss of a loved one, right? Right. Um, but this whole concept of grace, forgiveness, and justice, and change, and standing up to what is right, right standing up for what is right and what is wrong are so important in this conversation. Well, let me, let me just end with this. Uh, this is from that same article. It says, as American Christians, we often long for snapshots that make us feel good. We want anecdotes of grace, but in the hurry to resolve painful and uncomfortable stories, we rush past the systemic injustice that lies beneath. Even in the face of overwhelming evidence of racism in our criminal justice systems, too many of us remain stoically convinced that injustice is only personal and rarely, if ever, systemic. When a black person extends radical forgiveness, we see the grace of the gospel. But when we ignore a black person's call for justice, we cheapen that grace. Both are acting like the God we serve. We need to listen to them both. That's uh, so powerful. So we'd love your uh, your feedback on this, your reactions to this at the Common Good Radio Show on Facebook, this article out of Christianity Today. Well, coming up next out of Religion News, the headline reads this, Good News, Bad News on Churchgoers' Views of President Trump. We're going to wrestle with that next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thank you for joining us today. You are welcome. Thank, and thank you for being here. Oh, man, my pleasure. This show would not be as fun, you know. Well, that's very kind of you to say. Own. Oh, that got sweet. Uh, I'd, I'd still be making the same salary whether you're here or not, so you might as well be here. It's right? all like, about the money with you, isn't it? <laughs> oh, I'm doing this for the Benjamins, baby. Man, oh, man. <laughs> well, show your true colors, Brian Fromm. Yeah. Yep, that's also why I'm in the ministry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, anyway, you can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, on Twitter at Common Good Talk Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, We are glad for all of you who, and thankful for all of you who do podcasts. So let me read to you out of Religion News, the good news, bad news of churchgoers' views of Trump. So this is, uh, it's always fun to read stuff that are a little more, I know numbers aren't always impartial, but numbers tend to be more impartial. Right, And so I'm just going to read this study that was done, and then would like to hear your reaction to it. I'm happy to do so. The other day, Gallup, which does is kind of the main pollster group in all of, uh, all of our country. It's also what horses do. <laughs> no? Okay. I'm going to let that sit there for a second. Mm, that was good. It was not good. No, that was good. <laughs> Don't encourage me. That was good. The other day, Gallup released new survey data showing that more Americans approve 
of Donald Trump's job performance than approve of him as a person. Surprised? Okay, not so much. And it's not as if the approval rate is high in either case. It's 40% for the job, 34% for the person. Nevertheless, for those of you who worry that the most religious among us are giving the commander-in-chief a pass in the personal behavior department, the good news is that the biggest gap between the two categories, percentage-wise, comes from weekly churchgoers. 19% fewer of them approve of Trump personally then approve of his performance. Among Republicans, the gap is a mere 13%. But then there's bad news. Notwithstanding the big approval gap, weekly churchgoers still approve of Trump as a person way more than do those who seldom or never go to church, 44% versus 30%. Uh, Could non-churchgoers possess a more evolved sense of personal morality from uh, from more morality than churchgoers? Right. So there is some editorializing going on by the religion news here. Right. Uh, Anyway, Gallup also provides some interesting comparisons between Trump and his presidential predecessors, Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. Uh, In the wake of the Lewinsky scandal and President Clinton's subsequent impeachment and acquittal, Americans approved of Clinton as a person about as little as they now statistically approve of Trump. But they very much approve of Clinton's job performance to the tune of 60 percent. In Bush's case, the balance went the other way. Americans approved of him as a person more than they approved of his job performance. Uh, In 2003, a year before his reelection, the gap was 68% versus 50%. Curiously, Gallup released no comparison with Barack Obama. Uh, And then it keeps going and going and going. By election day of 2012, Obama's job approval was above water at 51%, while his personal approval rating had edged closer to 60%. And that is all the numbers. So lots of numbers for you there. Uh, It goes back to you and I's age old discussion about um, the person versus the office. But uh, let's start by are you surprised by any of these or have we read enough of these that these feel kind of normal to us? It seems that you can make the numbers say whatever you want. Uh, I just found it. So on Sunday, Donald Trump himself tweeted 95 percent approval rating in Republican Party. Thank you. Huh? So a bunch of people are commenting. They're responding to the tweet with differing opinions. I'm like, how is this? I'm not a statistician. Someone that is can probably come and educate me. Uh, How, 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 how are there so many conflicting opinions about what an approval rating actually is? Like I've read like four or five articles just in the last two weeks that make wildly different claims. And even just in this thread, it's, it's worth going there just for the thread. To be honest, there's, you know, what's it's a 23,000 retweets. So it's a lot to weed, weed through, but it's, um, it's interesting. It's interesting to me how squishy some of this data seems to be. Like you were saying, there's some, editorializing going on yep. in this article in particular, which one could argue is all statistics either way without getting into the weeds, because I'm not totally convinced of some of the numbers that I'm reading. Um, you raise an interesting question though, about differentiating from the person and the performance. Uh, this, this is a hot button issue for me because I've seen this in, in ministry world a yep. lot yep. because performance is often linked to a attendance B giving or C both. And so it seems that oftentimes behavior or uh, character is excused as long as the bottom line is being achieved. And, and again, politics and pastoralship are, are two different universes, but do you find that this is a, a new differentiating for us as a nation or have we always been this way? Like, Hey, I don't know that I want to have coffee with them, but 
ah, the job he's getting done or the numbers don't lie or look at the stock market. Like, how do you, is that a new development for us or has that always kind of been there and we're just more exposed to it? I think it's always been there and we're exposed to it. For me, I didn't know that it was always there. Like, I always thought, yeah, because you're younger maybe or you didn't yeah. have access to information. But even now, I've told you the character of our leaders really matters to me. And to hear this, you know, Gallup. I get it. The religion news uh, went on to do some editorializing, but Gallup themselves is just giving you the numbers, right? And right. so uh, Gallup says that for weekly churchgoers, the we don't approve of his uh, maybe who he is as a person or his yeah. character integrity versus we approve of his job. That gap is the biggest among weekly churchgoers, which yeah. is saying that what Gallup is finding is that it is churchgoers uh, primarily who are saying – you know what? I just care about the results. I right. just care about the results. And you bring up the danger that you said we see this in churches. Uh-huh. Uh, we've seen some big pastors fall, and we've heard people go, I know he wasn't a great guy, but, man, his preaching was awesome. Right. That's and usually what it comes were, down to is preaching. Preaching right. was awesome. People were coming to faith, whatever else it might be. I literally heard this from somebody just the other day about one of the pastors who is now like has gone through a lot. And you're like, man, why are we still saying that um, – and it's really interesting. George Bush was the other way, right? People are saying, I like that guy, but I'm not sure I like how he's doing as a president, oh, right. which is really interesting. And a lot of it's tied to the stock market and this and other factors like that. But I've said it before. For me personally, and I think it's actually increasingly, hmm. I care about the character of our leaders, the people who are uh, representing us uh, to the world, right? The president represents us to the world. From our state to the con- – like, the character of these people matters to me. Yeah. The character – if I ever wasn't in a church and I was going to find a church, I think the character of the leadership of the church would be of highest importance to me to try to figure that out. And so I guess personally I don't understand these numbers a lot because I don't resonate with them. But, man, it's really interesting that it seems to be in Gallup's uh, surveying – churchgoers who are able to most make that differentiation and be okay with it. Well, and how do you ever actually know the character? Like, it's always amazing to me when people talk about actors or actresses and they'll say, oh, he's such a nice person. And I'm like, you don't, you don't, you don't know. You don't yeah. know that person. They're literally paid to pretend. So is it possible that we don't actually know how nice they are? And I think in some ways, unfortunately, a lot of pastors are professional communicators that they know how to depict an image or a mantra or an ideology they're they're adept at you know conveying what they want to yep. convey when you talk about like oh that would be highest priority for me like i don't think anyone would say oh i don't care about their character that doesn't matter to me yep um but how how forthright we are in actually finding that out or how forthright that person is in disclosing that yep. i don't think most people would introduce themselves as Hi, I'm really good at my job. I just have no character. Uh, I'm a slime ball. Like yeah. nobody would admit that. So how you know that puts you in a tricky place to say in some sort of like ethereal sense that's the highest importance of me. How do, how do you actually find that out? Uh, again, I'm speaking from theoretically because I've never really gone and had to go find a church. But right, uh, one of the things that's been crazy about in my mind about a lot of these big churches where their pastors have fallen in the last year or two is then people start coming out of the woodwork like, oh, yeah, we saw that. Yeah, right, that. right. I do feel like you could probably ask around a place. Like if I went to your church, you're not going to take me out to coffee and be like, hey, by the way, I struggle with lying and I am really don't treat my wife well. Right. I feel like there might be people that have been around that church for a while could be like, man, he is an awesome teacher. Mm. But like I think if, we're, if there are red flags, you can probably find them if you want to. Mm. Maybe I'm wrong. I would love to know other people who have done this because like I said, I've only worked in churches. I've never tried to find one right. and attend one. 
but it also, friends, if you're a pastor out there, like uh, put your character and your integrity at highest importance. And uh, we'd love to know. We'd love for you people to wrestle with these numbers because it's talking about a lot of us who go to church on a regular basis. Uh, what are your thoughts about this? Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show, Twitter at Common Good Talk. Coming up next, one of the pastors that I most enjoy reading and listening to, a guy named Matt Chandler, uh, talked about suffering and uh, our ill preparedness to understand suffering. That's coming up next here on the Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to the Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Every now and then we, we throw each other because I'm facing the window to uh-huh. the hallway. You are not. And people walk by here like we're zoo animals sometimes. Like They're not totally wrong. Yeah. Though, it, we are. It, like sometimes it feels like people are looking like just observing us and we kind of wave at them and they just throw us candy or something. We should set out like a little popcorn machine <laughs> so people could just sit, eat popcorn and just watch us a sign that says please don't feed the host (laughs) (laughs) no please feed the host i don't want that sign please feed the host so uh on facebook at the common good radio show twitter at common good talk and online at 1160hope.com we're grateful for all of you uh who choose to spend some time with us whether on podcast or on the radio uh we're always grateful that anybody is listening to this right you ever sit back and be like i can't believe anyone listens to me preach or talk on a radio like, all the time <laughs> it's just crazy and uh, i think some people have inflated egos where they're like there should be millions of people listening to us i'm like there's anybody <laughs> i think i always have a little bit of look of surprise when i preach like oh you came back yeah that's amazing i was at the college at wheaton uh for a homecoming this past weekend and i ran into somebody and we were just chatting and she goes uh, hey, I saw on Facebook you did this. Uh, they always think we're doing a podcast, but they're like, you did this podcast with somebody else, and I, I totally listened to it. It was great. And I'm like, you did? That's it crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and so it is always weird. Like sometimes you and I come in here, we just kind of talk and talk and talk, and then right. we go home. Right. Oh, <laughs> way we go. So. Somebody is going, amen, that is what you do. You talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. <laughs> Please read another liner. Go. Uh, so uh, not to go against what I said at the last segment, but one of the pastors who I – I listen to a lot, uh, have a, a respect for from a distance is a guy by the name of Matt Chandler out of the Village Church outside of Dallas, Texas. Uh, and Matt Chandler just wrote a new book that comes out of a lot of stuff he's experienced. If you know Matt Chandler's story at all, uh, on Thanksgiving Day in 2009, he collapsed from a brain tumor and was given two to three years to live. Uh, despite that diagnosis, today he is cancer-free and shares his experience of suffering in his new book, Joy in the Sorrow, How a Thriving Church and Its Pastor Learned to Suffer Well. So it's this concept of suffering, and how do we as past uh, people, uh, Christ followers, how do we suffer well? And this is such an important topic, because how many times have we read people who their main thing about the faith that keeps them from the faith or causes them to leave the faith is this concept of suffering. So let me read a little bit of this article And then I would love just your take on how we can teach people to suffer well, how we can suffer well. Uh, He says, uh, the errors tend to be people have an over-realized eschatology or an under-realized eschatology. Would you just define for everybody eschatology real quick? I was going to ask you to. No, no, you got this. You got this. Let's just keep reading. So people, people want to know what it is. Yeah, it's, uh, why am I drawing a blank? You need to go. Eschatology. I believe in you. I'm going to tell you at the end. (laughs) Ooh, is that a pun? And when you, yes, it's the end times. It's our study of the end times. People are like, these are the worst two pastors. Anyway, when you err in either one of those directions, this is the second time in two days you and I have gone back and forth. You answer, you answer, and I've given in on both of them. What does that say about us? 
I don't know. Or, or you. When you err, it does say a lot about me. When you err in either one of those directions, it actually adds a greater burden to the suffering itself. Although well-meaning, those who err on the side of over-realized eschatology tend to cherry-pick Bible verses and say that things just aren't true. We don't understand that the Bible is a single story and not a bunch of stories. Uh, and so when you pull two sentences out and try to form a doctrine around it or form a theological idea around it, then you're more than likely going to do greater harm than good. When you get outside of that story and you cherry pick verses, you can really create whatever you think people want to hear. And I think well-meaning brothers and sisters in that really dark moment, the impulse is let me bring hope when really you should bring presence. Instead, we've got these old taglines and fake promises that might happen. A breakthrough might happen. God might heal. Over-realized eschatology can be so devastating, he says. However, because it doesn't leave any space for someone to die or someone to get cancer and then ultimately die of that cancer without putting a weight on them that the word of God does not put on them. Hmm. Other Christians err on the side of under-realized eschatology and say that things are incomplete, the pastor said, Chandler said. With under-realized eschatology, all you've got is the will of God. So whatever the will of God is, that's what's going to happen. Don't even worry about it. Just ride it out. This mentality, Chandler contended, does great harm to people who suffer and who want to be healed and indicates that the desire for healing is somehow ungodly. Uh, We certainly don't see David praying like that in the Psalms, he writes. We certainly don't see Paul praying like that in the New Testament. I mean, three times Paul's pleading with God, take this thorn from me, take this thorn from me. And Paul is expectant until he hears from God, no, my strength is going to be enough. But notice that Paul contends three times, and he doesn't seem to be embarrassed or feel like he needs to repent for the fact that he's perplexed but not crushed. I want us to believe together, Chandler writes. I want us to ask for the gift of faith while we're praying and expect God to heal while always having our hands wide open and believing that God is sovereign and good and he can be trusted with this outcome. What do you think of all this? Well, I, weirdly enough, this is a topic I actually really love talking about. I don't know what that says about me. Okay. Yeah, because it feels like, and a lot of the article kind of goes on to say, I think well-intending you know, preachers and teachers uh, are giving kind of half of the picture. Um, and he's very gracious, I think. I don't think, you know, yep. anywhere in this article does he even kind of whiff of like accusation or people just trying to, you know, swindle well-meaning churchgoers. But I think uh, there is a real difficulty and this isn't the whole church, Big C Church. I think this is a particular struggle in the West. I think a lot of our brothers and sisters in the East actually have a a much more robust eschatology, a much more robust theology of suffering. It's I think it's time for us to to learn in a big way because even think about how we. I was just talking about this uh, on Sunday. How we deal with funerals, right? We we dress people up in their Sunday best, and we make their faces up, and we make them smile a little bit. And every funeral I've been to, I hear somebody look in the casket and say something like. Ah, he looks so good. Uh, and in my head, I'm always yeah. like, is that the point? Is this, for, that's <laughs> yeah. not for him. That's for us. That's for us to, you know, kind of, as, kind of maybe appease some of our yep. discomfort. And I think that we, not just suffering, but discomfort is something that we, in a lot of ways, kind of run from. But I, my wife, I think, actually said it best. She wrote this brilliant song about uh, the valley. And she says, uh, one of the lines of the song talks about the valley being where things grow. Mm. And I never even thought about like how beautiful an imagery that is. She's like, yeah, the mountaintops are great, but the valleys are where things grow. Mm. And that's kind of some of the premise of the article is, is that suffering isn't something just to kind of get through, something to kind of like stomach until we can pull out of this. It's like, yes. oh, 
seasons of suffering and pain are actually where like the roots go down deep. It's like where we actually are purified and we're grown and they're not, you know, there is a lot of really terrible theology that like, well, God gave you cancer so that he would grow you. I don't think that's the case at all, but I can certainly say in my own life, it is the seasons of pain and difficulty and struggle and sorrow that, that kind of like dark night of the soul. That, yeah. that is where a lot of like growth and maturity did eventually come from. And I don't think I would ever ask for it or wish it on anyone, yes. but I can certainly point to it and say, oh man, God, God did a lot of growing in me in that season. That's good. Ellie Holcomb, a singer songwriter uh, said this just a really r- kind of, mirrors what you were just saying naturally afraid of pain humans want to skip over the hard things holcomb said but often it's in entering those broken places that we see the power of the gospel yeah that's true uh that's so powerful so in the the 30 seconds we have what is kind of one word that you would give to people who are listening right now who are really struggling with the brokenness of life we need to be okay with lament the bible is filled with it the psalms are filled with lament i think Crying out to God is as much worship as anything. Mm. And I think so often we're sort of pre-programmed to only think of like the hand raising, like statements of victory as worship, but like asking God, where are you? What are you doing? What it is? You're right in line with the psalmist, with Jeremiah, with the book of Lamentations. Like, I think it's worth not only just like being okay with it, but actually entering into it and seeing even our lament and our pain as an act of worship. That's really good. If you're suffering, we'd love to be there for you. You can reach out to us on Facebook at the, uh, the common good radio show, uh, or on Twitter at common good talk. Well, coming up next, uh, we're going to talk about marriage and particularly the marriage, the linking together, uh, of Christians and non-Christians and an interesting study that just came out. That's coming together. That's coming up next on the common good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. On Twitter, at Common Good Talk. That is at Common Good Talk. And as always, you can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Go ahead, subscribe, rate, review. Thank you for all of you who already do that. We, We appreciate it. What? So the rate, the rating is the star, the stars, the review is the written comment. Correct. And the subscribe is means that you just get it automatically. Is that only an Apple podcast thing? The subscribing piece? (laughs) I have no idea. I actually don't because I only do my podcast through Apple. So I, it's always been part of my experience when doing podcasts, but I actually don't know. Either way, I think you're right on. Subscribe, rate, review. That's, those are the three you always I'm going to guess that subscribing is something that happens across platforms. That's okay. my guess. All right. The rating Ooh. and reviewing, maybe not, though. Our produ- no, I think all of them. Our okay. producer just looked at me and went, yes. Oh. Yes. He, he, he did very knowingly. He very, did, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. He said, just, he said, well done, good and faithful. If you would just ask me, I could have answered this a long time ago. <laughs> you really should be asking the millennials a lot more often. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Speaking of millennials, here's what we read at ChristianHeadlines.com. More than half of Christians under the age of 35 years old. So that's Christians under the age of 35. Thank you. They believe that Christians should not date unbelievers. What? A new study has found that about half of Christians under the age of 35 believe a Christ follower should not become romantically involved with an unbeliever, according to a new study from uh, Teleos Teleos Research. Teleos. Oh, that would make more sense. Doesn't it? Totally makes more sense. (laughs) I even took Greek. Yes. Teleos. What does eschatology mean, Brian? 
the study of the end times. <laughs> the study of how it all ends. <laughs> the final destination of humanity. I do know that, that I was trying to play with you there, and I do feel like it came across as I have no idea, and I did four years of Wheaton and it some It did grad come school. across that way, yeah. So, you know, those of you who turned it off, I'm sorry for that, but... <laughs> They're not hearing your apology because they, they turned it off. I just, turned, that just struck me. But. <laughs> you just apologize into the void. Every now and then I'll talk on this microphone and, and try to be funny and like, eh, and then be like, nope, nope, that did not come across <laughs> that way. Story of my life, man. There you go. So according to the research, 51% of those surveyed said that a Christian should not date a non-believer uh, relevant magazine uh, reports. And so I'm curious, uh, you're just out of this age bracket by a couple years. Uh, a uh, year. One year, oh, yeah. I, I, mind you, are 38, but then you're, you're 36. That's right. I understand. Uh, I have aged a lot the last couple of years. <laughs> particularly since January, the whatever. <laughs> yes, right. Uh, does this surprise you? And then I'm going to ask you a pastoral question. But do, does it, do these numbers surprise you? It does surprise me. It, it surprises you by how high it is or how low it is? By how high it is. Why does that surprise you? So uh, we're talking Christians, 35 years old or below. Yeah. I mean, in my very limited window of experience, uh, young people... I thought we're becoming less and less concerned with whether or not their faiths matched up. Hmm. Why do you think that is? What has been your, just the people you've gotten to know and seen, and why is that the case? I don't really know. I think there is just a, I think probably 50 years ago in my, again, very limited experience and knowledge, there was a much greater um, value, I think, placed on those two things kind of being lined up with sort of an increasing plurality. Like I've heard a lot of people say, hey, as long as we're both, Sort of spiritual, right? That yeah. should be fine. So he's a spiritual this and I'm a spiritual that and we're going to raise our kids together. And that just seems to be the conversation that I personally have heard a, a whole lot more of. So, I, yeah, I was surprised to learn that more than half said, well, that's probably not a good idea. Yeah, that's interesting. I, so when those people come to you, let's go, let's take off your radio hat and put on your pastor hat. When people come to you and let's pretend they say, hey, Ian, I'm, I'm thinking of dating. Uh, I, I met this guy. Uh, he's he's awesome. He's the best. Uh, and then it comes out in the conversation that they're not a believer. Do you are you strong on that? Like, don't do that. Are you? I think that's a bad idea. Or are you? Where do you come out? Well, how do you how do you counsel people? Well, there's a couple of schools of thought. Um, some of this comes from my own sort of rebellious ontology that yeah. when somebody in authority said, hey, definitely don't do this thing internally, I was like, well, now I just want to do that thing. <laughs> so part of this is more like tactic yep. and approach. Um, but I try to really help them think through what it is that they're asking the other person to be okay with or what it means for their own spiritual journey. Like I, you know, obviously you and I have experienced people that have said, you shouldn't have non-Christian friends at all yeah. ever because yeah. they'll, they'll contaminate your faith. And I'm like, okay, well, that feels completely unhelpful and unbiblical unbiblical <laughs> yeah. right right exactly uh but i will actually try to ask them and i'll you know i'll try to ask questions rather than give imperatives but um ask them what's their end goal there what is sort of their hope for this relationship where do they hope that it's heading and then ask them are there some crossroads is there an impasse at some point for what you desire the future of your relationship to look like in your future of your relationship with jesus and what you're expecting this person to do or not do and more often than not they'll kind of come to some sense of like ah i think you're right but i really still think he's awesome like yeah. oh, all right but i just want you to at least own the fact that you're you're willingly saying i'm hoping for this trajectory but as it stands right now this seems to be heading in a in a slightly different direction. Yeah. And then it becomes about kind of weighing their pros and cons for them. But I'll, I'll give them a pretty strong sense of like, Hey, if your faith and your kind of spiritual trajectory is as important to you as you say it is, 
is it possible that this is maybe sideways energy for what you're really truly looking at? And that will often in turn kind of expose other conversations where they'll often admit, I know, but I'm just so desperate to be in a relationship. I just, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not confident that if I, if I don't really latch onto this one, that another one will come along. You know, yeah, a lot of, they, you start to really sort of expose some of the fears and stuff that are a part of that. But you and I both as pastors, like I'm sure this happens at your church. I won't ask for names, nor will I give any from my own, <laughs> but you see people who were one of them regularly is in church and engaged yeah. in their faith. And the other um, spa- the, the spouse is nowhere to be found. Right. Which happens with Christian couples too, by the way, most of them in my context, they were there at one point. Right. Right. And so, but just even in those, you could just see the, uh, the pain in that and yeah, the right. disjointedness. And that's, that's the hard part. Like you see that and, uh, yeah, it is. Uh, it's always painful, and but there's no good answer to it. Like you're like, I'm right. praying for you guys. I'm praying this right. this this works itself out. But to enter into marriage in that way, like again, most of the ones that I'm talking about, they didn't enter into marriage that way. That's true. But to enter into marriage that way feels like you're setting yourself up for some pain. All of marriage, in some ways, is setting yourself up for some pain. But you're setting some yourselves up for some really deep pain that's that's going to be hard to navigate. Well, and it's it's one of the things like in February we're hosting again the Together Conference that's at the Yellow Box. Uh and this is why we try to make these things available not just for church people but for exactly the kinds of people that you're talking about. We're like, "Hey, my husband and my wife won't even won't even attend a service, but a conference and we you know, we make it really affordable. Like, "Hey, would you at least be willing to invest in your relationship?" Because like you said, it's not just a Christian non-Christian thing. Yep. All, all sort I mean, they ebb and flow and we we understand that like a lot of people who've been married, you, you know, you're coming up on two decades. Yep. You both are very different people than when you first started dating. That is correct. And that's supposed to happen. You're yep. not supposed to be 22-year-old Brian Fromm your yep. entire life. And I think that's also the difficulty where we make these hard and fast rules like that's a terrible idea. Hey, as long as he's signed a statement of faith, he's good to go. Like, yes. That's also not a guarantee yep. either. So trying to just help people think more holistically about the nature of relationships and what are some of the pitfalls and things that we've learned, but also know that it it's all a little bit of a dance and there has to be kind of at its bedrock a a, a prayerful hope that God is in the midst of yeah. of helping you make those decisions. And I think when we divorce ourselves from that, Christian or non-Christian, we're, we're sort of, I think, destined for disaster. Yeah, I think you brought up an interesting point. I do think that um, when feelings are involved and this kind of stuff, yes, it's right. hard to be like, don't do that. Right. But I think more so if you're single and you're looking to date, uh, I you need to have some of these conversations with yourself and with others probably before you get into it Yeah, uh, and kind of make those decisions. So uh, we're coming up next. Uh, we're going to talk about an article out of Christianity Today uh, from Pew Research uh, about evangelical expression in the public school uh, and prayer in the public school. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. Uh, you can continue the conversation. You can read the articles we're referencing. Continue having some conversation. Give us some feedback on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. You can do the same at Twitter at Common 
good talk. And you can find our podcast wherever it is uh, you get your podcasts. And, uh, yeah, we are grateful for those of you uh, who listen. And uh, I was listening to a podcast yesterday, and literally it made me laugh. Oh, no, it's just a radio show, and he was talking about his podcast. He goes, wherever it is you find your podcast. I was like, hey. That's what I say. <laughs> you felt affirmed? I did, but I, and then I thought to myself, it sounds just as funny when he says it. <laughs> what was our uh, comparison to it? Oh, the like the popcorn and hot dogs guy at the ball stadium. Yes. Right? Podcast. <laughs> get, get your podcast here. <laughs> wherever you get your podcast. Uh, so an interesting uh, study uh, that was reported on a Christianity Today, uh, the title is this, uh, Gen Z Evangelicals Still Express Their Faith at School, But Few Others Pay Attention. Wah, wah. And so this is research done through the Pew Research Center. We did some stuff uh, referencing uh, just kind of Gallup and Pew in the first uh, uh, hour today. Basically, what are some of the numbers? What do statistics tell us? And I found this one fascinating. Is Pew specific to churches because it's called Pew? Oh, gosh. Is that why? I was getting a little serious. I think it is. Yeah, you got really into it because of Pews. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. You were going for the funny, and I'm like, good, good point. Let's go with that. Yeah, your your brow got real furrowed. That was surprising. (laughs) I don't know what that means. (laughs) So here we go. Uh, Evangelical students notice far more Christian expression in U.S. public schools than their peers do overall and are more willing to engage in conversations with their friends about what they believe. According to a new report out today, this was just a couple days ago, from the Pew Research Center, the first of its kind, the release coincides with Focus on the Family's sixth Bring Your Bible to School Day when half a million teens were expected to bring a Bible to school as a way to celebrate First Amendment freedoms and share their faith. If the survey is any indication, evangelical public school students are far more likely than religiously unaffiliated peers to notice the flood of Bibles. So here's some of the stats. Pew found that evangelical teens are six times more likely than religiously unaffiliated teens to notice students reading scripture in school outside of class. Nearly three times more likely than the unaffiliated to witness student prayer before lunch or to see someone invited to a youth group or worship service so we'll stop there i found this kind of fascinating it wasn't that their culture is like uh against bringing bibles to school it's not like all these students are like oh we must stop these other students from praying <laughs> right it's that they don't even notice mm. and that's that's almost <laughs> that you know, for those who are really into this like getting kids to bring their bible to school that's that's almost more depressing so the, yeah, the question that i have about this research and i again i'm not a researcher mm-hmm. um how do they actually get these statistics? How do they get these percentages? Because I wonder if some of them, some of what might be at play, if you're asking evangelical teens, hey, have, have you noticed in the past? There's probably some like systemic pressure to say yes. Mm, like, gotcha. If you're a Bible-believing Christian youth group kid and someone's asking you, hey, have you noticed this or have you noticed that? I, I wonder if there's sort of like a blanket expectation, like, why should I guess I have to say it. So I wonder if that's contributing to some of the percentages here, but yeah. I actually have no way of knowing. I just remember when I was in high school, uh, I almost said, did you do this? But you were homeschooled. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you still did this. Did you do uh, see you at the poll? Do you remember see you at the poll? Well, yeah, nothing sadder than a homeschooler <laughs> going to the public school for see you at the poll. People are like, who's this kid? You like, go to the public school for it? I had a couple of times, mostly out of guilt, and it was horrifying. So I can remember see you at the poll, and I'm going to show some of my uh, young youth group evangelical baggage here. I can remember the the flagpole where we were at my high school was like literally where all the buses dropped all the kids. Yes. And every time it came up, I was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And, you know, and now you're a pastor. The youth pastor is like, see you and see you at the pole. And you're like, shoot, I got to go. I got to go. Uh, 
but I can remember it being like taking up so much of my mental energy and then like, yeah. no friends were even like, why were you out there? Like none of them even noticed. None of them had any idea. Like the expectation was that it was going to be this conversation starter. Or you were like standing up for your faith and exactly. people were like, hey, Brian, were you lost this yeah. morning? What were why you doing out there? Do we out there, man? Why are you singing that Sonic Flood song? <laughs> what's up with the What's up with the mid-20s guy with a guitar yeah. out there with you? Who he has that? frosted tips and a box of donuts. That seems weird. <laughs> why, why the guy with skinny jeans? I don't know. He had Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> it was probably Jinkos back then. It wasn't skinny jeans. <laughs> Hip with the kids. He had his yellow his yellow tinted glasses on bald chain necklace you're, you're just describing you and i as you yeah but it's true <laughs> here's the very interesting part of this here listen to this and i'd love your your you and i as we've said many times are both former youth pastors it says almost all evangelical denominations and parachurch groups are quote seeing changes in the way youth ministers are challenging their teens said richard ross a professor of student ministry at southwestern baptist theological seminary on average, younger youth pastors have softened their call to students to have gospel conversations at school hmm. and are not networking their efforts in order to establish evangelistic campus clubs or school campuses. Uh, I'm wondering if that's what you've seen, and is that a good thing? Is that a negative thing? Ross is going to later in this article uh, kind of hold this up as a negative. Yeah. He's going to say this is one of the things that's wrong with how we're trying to reach Gen Z, but there's part of me that's like, Man, to take that pressure off, if you're replacing it with some good kind of missional mindedness in our students and helping them understand that, this actually feels like a positive trend to me. Uh, but this article is kind of uh, setting it up as more of a negative trend. Yeah, and I, it's different when you're talking about students. But, you know, we talk about a community uh, rather than sort of this kind of conversion tactic. We talk about the bless strategy. Right. The begin with prayer, listen, eat, serve, and then share your story. And they're finding kind of globally even, that that actually has led to more quote-unquote conversions than even sort of traditional conversion tactics. Like So the idea of, what if you just like listened to people and shared meals with them and served them when you actually listened to their needs? Like that approach, I think, you know, you and I have kind of talked about that kind of clipboard yep, upbringing yep. that we have, just sort of walking up to people you never met before and ask them where they were going when they died, um, which I think is also interesting because later it says uh, religious persecution is an issue in public schools, Pew found, but only in a limited manner. A full 86% of teens in general and 82% of evangelicals say they rarely or never witness students in their school being teased or made fun of because of their religion. So there is sort of this other sort of blanket narrative that like, oh, man, our kids are under fire and they're, they're constantly being persecuted. And Pew seems to be finding, at least in this study, that's not nearly as overtly the case as maybe sometimes we make it out to sound, yeah, which yeah. I, I find also fascinating within this whole discussion. Yeah, and I think what it comes down to, uh, the article links some of uh, this and it says, as a result... Uh, Ross said he was the professor of student ministry. Teenage baptisms in almost every every evangelical group are dropping precipitously. Hmm. I'm not sure the reasons are in the survey. Right. I right. think I think that is something we need to wrestle with. Like what agreed, agreed. What is going to effectively pass the faith down through the generations? I don't think it's an issue of oh no, it's those secular Christian uh, those secular uh, public schools that are indoctrinating our kids, right? I think there's something deeper that the church needs to wrestle with. Like, how are we engaging this next generation? What are we thinking about as opposed to like, oh, no, just give them the youth pastor and go get it done. You know, there's yeah, there, that is a big question. I'm not sure this article, though, answers the reason why. So what do you think the answer is? Because you used a couple of metaphors, even just briefly there, that's like passing our faith on to them. And I think young people are really resistant even to that kind of language. Okay. I don't want 
your faith to be passed mm-hmm. to me. I think there's a lack of what Scott McKnight would call Christoformity. I think that they're looking with really, uh, not everyone obviously, but a really honest perspective like, oh, my old man is a jerk at home, but right. he's like really insistent that I go to youth group. <laughs> this Jesus has not seemed to do much transformation in his life. Yeah. Why would I be interested in that? Yeah, that's a great point because I do think, uh, I think everybody has a high radar for hypocrisy, but I certainly think the younger generations have a bigger radar for it. Like, I think eh, so. I think so. I don't want that. Like, right. What What difference does this make? What, that's a great question. They look at it kind of culturally across the political landscape, but they also look at it inside the four walls of their homes, right. as you said. And they're going, well, why do I want to be a part of this? Like, I do think what he brings up is an issue. Why are, yeah. say, baptisms of teenagers going down? Totally. I don't think the issue is persecution and the indoctrination of the public school system. I think it lies more on churches uh, and parents. I, I think you're right on, and I think that is probably an unpopular position to take. We're and taking we're, it. <laughs> and I punched the microphone. I felt so big you're about that. You're so passionate about it. My goodness. <laughs> Uh, well, we'd love to hear more of what you have to say. This was out of Christianity Today just this week. You can find it on our Facebook page at the Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next, we're going to tackle this. Intervarsity can require its leaders to be Christian, a judge rules. That's mm. coming up next here on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Uh, alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're glad to have you join us. You can join us on Twitter at Common Good Talk. That's at Common Good Talk. Online at 1160hope.com or on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Go ahead and follow us there. And uh, you can also subscribe, rate, review, get our podcast. If you don't like listening to us between 4 and 6, maybe you don't like hearing the, uh, the commercials or it's a bad time, you can uh, just you can listen to us at your convenience. So, mm, oh, so convenient. <laughs> <laughs> Here to serve. You can listen to us whenever. You can do that wherever it is you find your podcast. Go ahead and subscribe, rate, review. Where there was uh, an interesting uh, ruling that just came down just this week that had to do with inner varsity. It says, yes, a Christian student group can require its leaders to be a Christian. That's the decision a judge reached last week in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship versus the University of Iowa, a lawsuit the Evangelical Christian Campus Ministry brought against the university and several of its leaders after the school booted InterVarsity and other religiously affiliated student groups for requiring their leaders to share their faith, uh, share their faiths. Those groups are also included Muslims, Sikhs, and Latter-day Saints, according to a statement for, from InterVarsity. Uh, we must have leaders who share our faith. InterVarsity Director uh, of External Relations Greg Zhao said in a written statement, no group, religious or secular, could survive with leaders who reject its values. We're grateful the court has st- stopped the university's religious discrimination, and we look forward to continuing our ministry on campus for years to come. Interestingly, at least three University of Iowa leaders are being held personally accountable to cover the costs of any damages awarded later to InterVarsity and the president of the university could still be found liable. This, uh, I was reading about this uh, some more, and it, it's just maybe I'm missing some nuance to the case that maybe we can you you can find here. But it just seems crazy that the university be like, nope, a Christian doesn't have to be in a varsity. A Muslim, you don't have to be a Muslim to lead the Muslim group. Like it just seems. Uh, I don't know. I don't even get how this became an issue. This seems a bit crazy to me. Let, okay, so let me just read a little context, because we touched on this really briefly a couple weeks ago, but people listening might not be 
totally familiar with the details. So the lawsuit came back in August 2018 after the University of Iowa claimed the university was violating the university's human rights policies by requiring leaders to affirm the organization's statement of faith. That policy prohibits discrimination based on race, creed, color, religion, sexual orientation, gender identity, or other attributes. In June 2018, the university deregistered InterVarsity for more than a month, returning it to good standing only after it sued. During that time, the University of Iowa limited InterVarsity's access to campus, froze its bank account, shut down its website, and labeled it defunct for lack of student interest, according to a statement from Beckett. Membership in the student group dropped from uh, the nearly 40 students to just over 20, the sharpest membership decline in over 20 years, according to the Legal Institute. The student group has been active at the university for 25 years, according to InterVarsity, which has similar groups on campuses across the country. All students are welcome to join InterVarsity, which hosts weekly Bible studies and monthly meetings for prayer, worship, and discussion. However, the leaders are required to affirm its statement of faith. So I'm kind of with you at the end of all of this. Yeah. It, it, maybe there is some nuance to this that we're missing. This does seem... Like a little open and shut. I get, I get why. So the policy prohibits discrimination based on race, creed, color, religion, sexual orientation, gender identity, or other attributes. And it doesn't sound like the group was in any way prohibiting right. participation. That's the important based on any of those things. Yeah, yeah. Like if they're like, you have to be a Christian to join this group. You could start to see how that could be problematic. I, I, I totally agree. But, but to, to lead, lead the group, right? Uh, and what's interesting, the article goes on to say later that <clears throat> the university allows fraternities and sororities to admit only men and women, respectively. Uh, and Pi Kappa Phi requires members to be, quote, believers in God and exhibit the highest ideals of Christian manhood. Another group called Love Works requires its leaders to affirm the LGBTQ community and acknowledge that Jesus will be at the center of everything we do. Hmm. Uh, so there also seems to be some, uh, there seems to be some uh, um, non-equality here in, in how they put this out there. So I, I would love to know why they even went down this road, uh, because it also seems like it was an issue with some Muslim groups and right. groups. It seems like if you're going to have groups, you need to allow them to structure themselves. Again, I do believe there'd be an issue if they were like, oh, you can't sign our statement of faith. You can't be a part of this group. Right. Uh, but this seems like a pretty open and shut case of... of uh, religious freedom, and and uh, I'm not sure why this was an issue. Well, here, here's how it concludes. The University of Iowa has since revised its student organization policy to allow student groups to require their leaders to, quote, agree to and support that group's beliefs, yeah. which, again, maybe we're missing something really big here. That seems so obvious yeah. and such low-hanging fruit. Like, yeah, any group of any creed, color, persuasion, whatever – that seems like a reasonable expectation for the leaders to agree to and support. And if someone that here's the other thing, if that wasn't you, why would you want to be in leadership of that group in the first place? Right. Except to make a problem. And again, I realize that this is, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a principled argument. So it's not about somebody necessarily wanting to, it's about, you know, protecting against discrimination, which again is something that universities need to be doing. Absolutely. And I could, I could definitely see, like you said, if this, if this was discrimination or prohibition from participation in any kind, that obviously that becomes really problematic. Yeah. But yeah. for, I'm trying to think of like what a good equation would be. Like if we wanted somebody, I don't know, I can't even think of a good metaphor, someone to teach, but they actually had no interest in or no experience with the subject matter. Yeah. We're like, well, it's, it's open for anyone to teach. Anyone, oh. anyone wants to teach engineering, just go for it. Yeah. I want to I lead the math club. 
Have you ever taken meth? Nope. <laughs> nah, but I really feel like I should. And like, oh, well, that's... I feel like it's discriminatory for you not to allow me. What, what do you do? I'm a history major. <laughs> like, right, uh... right. And that's not a p- perfect one-to-one analogy, yeah, sure, but it, sure. it does... I don't know. I, do we? Are we seeing stuff like this more often? Is this... A, I feel like we're having conversations like this more often than we did two years ago. It feels like it, but it, it's, I don't get... Uh, why a university that wants to be about inclusion, right? All universities tend to be wanting to be about inclusion. Why they would want to stamp down on any group. Like, that's what's the confusing thing to me here about well, leaders. Well, if it was a hate group. Okay, that's a good point. I guess I'm talking about more uh, groups that are kind of on an equal footing, but maybe, maybe I'm biased. Maybe there are people who think the same group, but that's not even why they went after them, right? Right, right. Maybe deep down they wanted to shut InterVarsity down. Yeah, that possibly will be it. But uh, from uh, uh, assuming they didn't want to do that, you're just like, I, that seems like a weird kind of spot to stand. Yeah. The same way, uh, you know, if they have an LGBTQ group, uh, I wouldn't be like, hey, yeah, you should let uh, somebody who doesn't believe that, uh, you know, in LGBTQ rights to be able to lead the group because there seems to be an agenda there. There seems to be something. I right. Don't, just seems like a really odd move. I, I read the story looking like, okay, where's the controversial angle in this? And, like, <laughs> and it quite frankly also looks like the judge came down that way because the judge is holding the university and the people who made this decision literally liable uh, for costs. Like that's a big step. I was reading another article where they're like, yeah, that's a that's like a ringing kind of um, uh, move there by the judge to be like, hey, yeah, not only are you wrong, but you're wrong to the point that you got to pay for this message you put up. Yeah, that part actually was sort of surprising to me, to be honest. And I don't know. It's interesting that we were just talking about, like, the assumed religious persecution of, like, high school students and how it seems to be, at least based on the peer research, like, hey, it's not nearly as uh, catastrophic as it's often made to sound. But then you come to stories like this and you're like, all right, so what do we do with this, though? Or something like a, a group seemingly without any kind of merit uh, or any kind of grounding was really being the the threat of being choked out or smoked out of of the university organization is uh, I don't know that's something that I think I, I'm not quite sure what to do with this one in particular because it doesn't seem to have a lot of teeth yeah but like does this ruling affect other future rulings do you think like does this oh. story have effects for other campuses and other universities struggling through the same thing or is it sort of like just a a one off every time I, it doesn't seem like a one-off. I think you are right. I, there there have been some other universities, they're not coming to mind, uh, that have been kind of clamping down on some of their Christian organizations that seems to be more more regular, more of a trend. Right. Uh, and I think we as people of faith need to wrestle with, okay, what do you do with that? What do you, when you're, uh, you and I both went to Christian colleges, but if, um, you know, if you were at the University of Illinois, like what is it? mean to live out your faith and be a part of something like university while still being a part of the uh, of the um of the college campus i think those are going to be things that christians uh that christ followers are going to need to wrestle with here in the coming years because it does seem more yeah i i i don't know that for sure it just does seem more well i'd love to know what we can be doing as the church to like how are we supposed to interact with these stories and how and again like the conclusion of the story i imagine most would say is positive it always does pain me a little bit when i see that christian organization had to sue a university or sue a family like that always leaves a little bit of a knot in my stomach but again maybe the the end goal was worth it i don't don't know it seemed like it was i agree with you on that but it seems like it was necessary yeah right well coming up next 
uh, seven things that I love this phrase, extroverted introverts wish you understood. Extroverted introverts. Mm-hmm. And that is not even an oxymoron. That is a real thing. That's right. We are going to discuss that coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us. Hope you're having a great day. Uh, you can I'm having me. a great day. Are you? Sure am, Brian. You've got a mug of coffee. You usually complain that it's not nobody else has it all filled up back there. Must be good, though, because you got, you got a mug of it today. I don't complain about it. I merely state <laughs> that it's usually empty. <laughs> it is a statement of fact. And uh, how is the station coffee, though? Good? Let's move on to the story. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Oh, that's funny. But you don't strike me as a coffee, uh, for lack of a better word, snob. Like you, 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 your your bar is probably not too high for. I appreciate that I don't come across as one. But are you? Would you call yourself one? Mm, what's a step below snob? Uh, you're picky with your coffee yeah, preferences. Maybe. Okay. Yep. <laughs> but just blue collar enough to drink whatever's in front of me. So. <laughs> <laughs> like, is it hot? Is it slightly caffeinated? I'll drink it. I'm in. So. Uh, we teased this one before the break. Seven things that extrovert, extroverted introverts like myself, the author here named Lauren Levine, uh, wish you understood. Before we d- jump into it, help us understand, flesh out extroverted introvert. That sounds like an oxymoron. It's not an oxymoron, and I imagine a number of different people would describe it a number of different ways. Uh, part of what people misunderstand about introversion or extroversion. It's actually more about where you get your energy from. So if an introvert is in any way sociable, people be like, oh my gosh, you're an introvert? You seem to like people. Introverts are like, yeah, I like people. (laughs) I like people a lot, actually. You could even make the case sometimes that introverts tend to be much better at like going deeper, like the depth of conversation. They're not typically as interested in like schmoozing or small talk. uh, And sometimes, as we'll get into, there's a, a ceiling in terms of energy, but there's there's most certainly a thing uh, as social introversion, and I think we've done a disservice to introverts yep. by like just sort of pegging them as like antisocial, alone in a corner, or stay at home altogether. And that's not just not what introversion is. Yeah, like I know at our church, my wife, uh, my wife is a good solid introvert. Like she's not on the border. Like she's in an introvert, but yeah. she'll lead worship. And then mm. every now and then she'll fill in, or she'll be up front of me, and people will be like. Your wife's not an introvert. I see her talking to people. She's leading, and I'm like, right. Yeah, but you don't see her going home and napping when this is over. right, this right, is right. Yes. So, uh, extroverted introverts. So the author here, Lauren Levine, uh, wrote this on June 26, and it already has 1.2 million views. Like, Whoa. This is resonating with people. She said uh, she is calling herself an extroverted introvert and saying, "Here's what I want you to understand about people like me." So uh, there are seven of them. Let's walk through them. And uh, see which ones stand out. Well, number one, my socialization abilities have a time limit, and that time limit varies from situation to situation. She says, a networking event where I know no one, I'm probably going to end up ducking out early. A birthday party for a friend where I know people, sure, I'll hop from brewery to brewery. What do you think about that one? I thought you were going to bail on saying brewery. That's I a you hard were... word to say. No, not because of its difficulty. Sometimes if it's like mildly controversial, I Uh-oh. thought you were going to like self-edit and be like, I'll hop from 
Coffee shop to coffee shop. That's where I thought you were going with that. <laughs> From church prayer service to church. <laughs> well, and this is, so this is as someone who, uh, at least in college, was told was an ambivert. So I'm like, Down the middle. technically kind of on the line so I can yeah, show up kind of as either or. I totally get this. It is about the situation. Mm-hmm. Like, just full confession. It's actually pretty frightening for me. If I'm at like a conference or an event where you have to get your food somewhere and then go find a seat. Oh, yeah. At one of those round tables, I start scanning, you know, like, where are my friends? Who am I going to sit with? Where do I? It's it's a very weird internal kind of panic. And, and a lot of times, if, like, I don't know people there, I'm like, okay, how can I get out of this? How can I? Which, you know, I end up really enjoying it often more than I think that I will. But, uh, yeah, the idea that the situation determines what the time limit is, I think, is spot on. Yeah, whereas X. Uh, off the chart extroverts are like, let me go meet new people. Doesn't Look at matter. This room right. Full of new people. I have a buddy who's an extrovert and he's a wedding photographer. And it's like a wedding he's shooting ends early. He'll just go to a different wedding just no to be around people. Way. Loves, lo- lo- it's like where he gets his energy from. That's so funny. Uh, my wife, I've just described her as an introvert, will be at a social gathering of some sort uh, and we'll be sitting by each other at a table. And there will come a moment, I know it. Where sh- if we've been there too long, I will start getting hit on right. the table. That's I'm right. Like, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? <laughs> That's how you respond, Brian. What do you want me to nope, do? I get out of there. Yeah, smart. Good <laughs> Number man. two. Yes, I left the event without saying goodbye. It's nothing personal. If I told you I was leaving, we'd have been forced to have a whole back and forth <laughs> about why I shouldn't leave. And I'd get guilted into staying an extra hour when I really need to decompress at home. I promise nothing happened that made me want to leave. This is just who I am as a person. I'm not great at this one. They call that the Irish goodbye, and I've never met an Irish person that just leaves. Like, oh. we tend to be the worst, it seems, at like going back to every room and letting everyone know, hey, I had a great time. Hey, great to see you. Hey, we're going to get out of here. That's, I'm much more, when I'm leaving parties, that's, that's definitely my ammo. Number three, I love spending time with people, but need to plan my schedule carefully extroverted introverts love socializing and we're actually good at making new friends contrary to popular belief but we have to be very aware of how often we're out and about otherwise we end up hitting the wall what do you think about that one uh i think it's spot on it ends by saying uh, if i'm doing stuff on friday and saturday don't count me in for sunday oh, brunch that's interesting. like so again sort of that ceiling mentality that idea that like yeah i want to do it i just need to kind of brace myself for it or plan it into the rhythms of my week. Sure, sure. Number four, uh, we're not big into unnecessary small talk. What did I tell you? If you're calling us for work purposes, don't be offended when we want to dive right in, tackle the task at hand, and move on. Can I tell you, I've always been a pretty, unlike Myers-Briggs and stuff, I'm, I've am i always been much on the extrovert side. Yeah. And the older I get, yeah, the more I resonate with these. Like, that I'm makes just sense. moving. I think by I'm going to be a hermit by 7 o'clock. <laughs> just gone. <laughs> I doubt that very much, Brian. I've seen you. Uh, but I think, yeah, the unnecessary small talk. And again, uh, I don't know a lot of extroverts who are like, oh, I love small talk. Sure. But it, it is a matter of, I think, again, like a ceiling, how long you can do it for. Uh, number five. Yes, I know I gave a speech or hosted an event. I'm still introverted <laughs> at my core. Yes, yes. Wait a minute. Extroverts will wonder out loud. She writes, you gave a presentation in front of 300 people. You're not introverted. <laughs> right. But after the speech, I came home and had to nap for an hour afterwards to recharge. Balanced. What I just said about you my literally wife. Just said it. Yep. What I just it's, said about it. It's funny, too, because in preaching, people say the same stuff. Yep. Like, how? oh, my gosh. How, how on earth could you have any introversion at all? You were just on stage by yourself for 25 minutes. You're like, yeah, I was terrified. And I'm. I'm forcing, I've learned to do it, obviously, yep. over the course of a decade and a half, but there certainly is an internal struggle that people don't see. I remember a pastor that I knew who remained nameless who 
uh, <laughs> he was great on stage. And then he would uh, he would come. Uh, you'd be with him in a social situation, and he was borderline antisocial. Like you'd sit there, and he was just really gregarious on stage. And then he'd literally pick up the newspaper and start reading it as you're sitting next. No to No kidding. Other. It was really weird. Was that Pastor Fry and Brom? <laughs> no. I, I liked his move, though. I mm. liked his move. <laughs> uh, next one, number six. Things that excite normal people intimidate me. Hmm. It'll be great to celebrate with you at your bachelorette party, but I feel overwhelmed by the idea of a weekend packed with scheduled activities done mostly with people I don't really know. If I had my preference, I'd be hanging out with you and just a couple of our close friends. I do want to call this out, though. The the heading is things that excite normal people intimidate me. She's normal, too. That is part of the struggle, I think, of introversion is that you see extroversion as the baseline, as normal. And so anything that you don't want to do is seen as abnormal. And I just don't I don't think it's the case. Last one. We shudder when someone next to us on the plane (laughs) sits down and says, so what do you do? Uh huh. Full-on extroverts don't mind making small talk for an entire three-hour flight. Extroverted introverts would rather walk to our destination. <laughs> Can I tell you, I'm turning into an extroverted introvert. Oh, really? I like. Is that, this article I, convicting? It really is. Like, I'm reading these like, yeah, that's me. Uh, yep, yep. The only one I don't need to do is like after preaching and stuff, I don't need to like go lay down. Really? I'm, I'm good. Like okay. I can go right on with my day and go right. have fun with people. Right. But a lot of these I'm like, yeah, I hate small talk increasingly or yeah, don't talk to me on a plane. I'm putting my headphones on. Well, at any time I've done like a personality profile test or a workshop, they do say that a lot of this stuff, like your core motivations typically don't change, but how they manifest in your life. Yeah. Actually, it's pretty common. If you took this test when you were 19 it's been a couple decades. It might be worth, you know, taking another deep dive. And again, they're just tests. Yep. They're often like highly reductionistic. You're more than the sum of your Myers-Briggs letters or your Enneagram number or any of that stuff. But there is, I think, some wisdom to kind of like having some uh, some check-in. Like, hey, am I still, I've been telling myself that I'm wired this way, but let me like really pay attention to my motivation or the things right. that I'm energized by. And I think, I think that can be really helpful. Absolutely. Well, we hope that's helpful for you. Really just... To understand yourself, but also to understand people in your life. You might be like, oh, I know that person. Right. If that's not you. Totally. And it's always just helpful tools to help us understand. Well, we are going to land the plane next. We are going to do it as we always do uh, with Interweb Insanities. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. That music can only mean one thing, and that is crazy stories that our producers crazy. have found from the internet. We're excited to go through them, but before we do, want to remind you about a campaign we're doing to help feed children through Cross International. Yeah, if you're uh, not familiar, for $39, a one-time gift that feeds a kid for an entire year, and we're also offering a really special offer right now, uh, like if you're a business owner or you make marketing decisions for a business, um, if you... Donate $2,000. We're going to give you 50 60-second spots that will air Monday through Friday between 6 a.m. and 7 p.m. And uh, that has a tremendous value associated with it. So this is an offer for anybody, really. But we want to challenge all of our listeners. $39 one-time gift or whatever it is you feel convicted to give. Uh, gives food for a kid for an entire year. Yep. And to take advantage of that special business benefactor offer, call 866-822-4883. Or go to 1160hope.com and click on the Cross International banner. If you give a $2,000 gift, you'll then receive a call from our marketing specialist here at AM 1160 uh, to set up your advertising campaign. So again, that's easy. You'll be helping to feed over 50 children and getting some marketing as well here on the station. It's a complete win-win. 
All right, I'm going to go first today. Oh, you did yesterday, too. I know, and it worked badly for you, so I'm going to try again. New York State. Really kind motivation, Brian. Deer burst through salon windows, startling customers. I saw this. A deer made a grand appearance at a hair salon in Lake Ronconcoma. Ronconcoma. Uh, New York. It's, it's going well afternoon. for me already. Surveillance footage shows a confused animal no. crashing through the store window, startling customers before fleeing. Mm-mm. The deer struck a customer no. seated in the waiting area. That woman, police said, oh, suffered head and leg pain oh, and was transported to Stony <laughs> Brook University Hospital with oh, non-life-threatening injuries. No! A deer! A female deer. I think that actually was a repeat, wasn't it? I think so. We've done that one before. Let's count the repeats. Tennessee. Man finds bears honking horn in his work van. Oh, no. A Tennessee man who heard honking coming from his work van investigated and discovered the horn was being sounded by a pair a pair of burgling bear cubs. That's adorable. Yes. Jeff Stokely of ASAP Security Systems. That's a pretty clever name. Said he had just left a customer's home in Gatlinburg when he heard his work van's horn sounding. He looked in the window and discovered a pair of black bears had gotten into the vehicle and locked themselves inside. Hey, boo-boo, let's see what we got in this picnic basket. Yeah, another another uh, repeat. What's your best Yogi Bear impression? I don't have one. Come on. Hey, boo-boo. That's pretty good. Hey, boo-boo. Oh. Yeah, what's yours? What's yours? Nah, I don't yep, have one. Do it. Florida. <laughs> Are you reading mine? <laughs> A woman boards Delta flight without ticket or identification. Authorities, Authorities are investigating. Go ahead. No, I'm okay. Go ahead. How a woman managed to board a Delta Airlines flight, flight from Orlando <laughs> to Atlanta without identification or a boarding pass. When officers arrived, the passenger had been escorted off the plane by Delta representatives after she was unable to produce a boarding pass for the flight. Officers asked the passenger for ID and for her boarding pass. She said she'd thrown her ticket away and did not have ID. The officers then or- escorted the passenger to the shuttle to exit airport property. Uh, property. Uh, we're working with law enforcement to investigate the incident at the plane and will not be providing any additional information. Delta Airlines apologized to Flight 1516 passengers in a statement for the delay after a person not ticketed for that flight was removed from the aircraft. Get off my plane. That's a repeat, too, isn't it? Oh, hey, they're good. They're good. <laughs> All right. Uh, this one. We know what's coming. It's the snakes. It's coming. It doesn't have a state associated with it. I don't know where this takes place. San oh, well. Jose. That's California. Where do you see San Jose? Where are you seeing that? You're about to read it. Okay. Thieves steal duffel bag. Apparently unaware it's full of snakes. Blech. It was a cold-blooded crime. That's uh-huh. funny. Reptile breeder Brian Gundy. That's the name of a reptile breeder, by the way. <laughs> had just given a talk in the animal presentation Saturday at the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Library in downtown San Jose. There you go. Well, going to get his car parked on the second level of the, of the 4th and San Fernando Street garage about 4.30 p.m., he left his snakes and lizards in boxes and a bag in a no-parking zone. When he returned for his critters, he made a grim discovery. As I was loading up my gear, I realized the bag that had my four pythons and blue skink lizard inside was gone, and they were there just seconds ago. Gundy had seen several people walk by his equipment, so he ran after them but couldn't catch up. He told KTVU he doesn't think they knew what was inside. Snakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why did it have to be snakes? Yeah. He said it was very upsetting for him, though, so that's unfortunate. And he just wants the snakes and lizard back. Just give this guy his snakes no back. Come on. Last one's in Florida. A woman accused of shoplifting hides from deputies in Big Lot ceiling for more than six hours. What? A woman was accused of shoplifting from a Big Lots in Charlotte County, sent deputies on a wild chase Thursday night after she climbed into the store's ceiling when she heard they were on their way and stayed there more than six hours. That's funny. The store's manager called authorities after Christina Perkins took an entire cart of merchandise into the women's restroom and used garbage cans as a makeshift barricade. The manager called 911 and yelled to Perkins that deputies were on the way. 
Deputies saw Perkins several times as they removed tiles, but they say she ignored their commands to give up and kept moving through the stealing. <laughs> the store was evacuated as authorities searched for Perkins with the fire department using ladders and a thermal imaging system to aid in the search. In fact, during the search, one deputy located Perkins' purse in the ceiling and oh found a spoon gosh. with white residue on it. There you go. Oh, boy. She's charged with felony criminal mischief, a petite theft, possession of drug it's, paraphernalia. It's petty, petty theft. That's not spelled this petty. <laughs> resisting a merchant and resisting law enforcement without violence. Come out to the coast. We'll get together. Have a few laughs. A new one. That was a new one. <laughs> way to go. Way to go, John. Way to go. Nope, Keith. Way to go. Way to go. Well, a fun show. I uh, hope you'll join us tomorrow. We're going to have the privilege of having Nancy Beach in studio uh, for a whole hour uh, tomorrow. So I hope you'll join us. Uh, from 4 to 6 p.m. Thanks for joining us today. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.